Welcome to About the Winelands. In this show, we will be chatting to leaders, influencers, wine producers, restaurants, and other role players. Tune in every Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday for your latest episodes. You will find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram TV, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to About the Winelands. Today I'm speaking to possibly the most famous um, winemaker in South Africa, Charles Beck. Pleased to meet you, Charles, and thank you for joining us on About the Winelands. Hi, my pleasure. Nice chatting to all of you. It's our pleasure having you here. Can you maybe tell us, I mean, you've, you've got such a story, so I'd love to hear, you know, um, a bit of history of how you personally got involved in the wine industry. And also, um, you know, the, 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 the history of Fairview and your family history would be great for our listeners to hear. Okay, it's, uh, it's quite a long history, obviously, stretching back to about 1693, uh, when Fairview was first granted to the first Spreeberg or settler in the area. Okay. Um, and uh, as far as my family is concerned, it's more recent than that. Uh, my late grandfather came from Lithuania about 1902 and uh, started as a butcher boy in Cape Town delivering meat by bicycle in Cape Town and then opened his first butchery in Paul uh, a couple of years later and whilst at the butchery in Paul near Paul station he met a lot of the local farmers and became intensely interested in viticulture and farming and agriculture in general and um, bought his first farm in 1916 and that is still in family hands it belongs to my cousin Michael that's Baxberg and unfortunately for him he had two sons that both wanted to go into the wine business and he bought Fairview in 1937 so my grandfather started on Fairview in 37 and followed by my father and now myself so third generation oh that's amazing and um, I mean obviously growing up on a wine farm you were always interested. Were you always interested in becoming a winemaker? <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I could do anything else. Uh, <laughs> so much so that, so much so that, uh, I think uh, there's a photograph of me on an old Fortune tractor, uh, mm. and I only where I would eat my lunch if they served it to me on a tractor. So I sat outside in the tractor and had my lunch there. So I've always been intensely interested ever since I was at any. Uh, intelligence, which I don't have a lot of. The only thing I really wanted to do was to farm and to make wine. So uh, there's no option in my life other than what I do. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that you, your grandfather had, you know, had, had actually bought a wine, for, started becoming interesting in viticulture and, and, and uh, interested in a wine farm. Otherwise, you would have ended up as a butcher. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I would have been very successful. I lost <laughs> the thumb in winemaking, so imagine what I would have done in butchering. Uh, it's quite interesting my my granddad uh, i could never understand why he was interested in that and i went back to lithuania a couple of years ago to go and have a look where little town where he came from and he's my great-grandfather was a flour miller and he built this big mill that was water driven that uh, went right across a river and had a big water wheel and the culvert where it diverted the water and he bought up all the wheat in the area and, and converted it into, into flour and sold it. 
And then I realized that that is actually what I do. I actually just add value to agricultural products. So if you give me milk, I'll turn it into cheese. You give me grapes, I'll turn it into wine. Flour, I'll turn it into bread. So nothing has really changed. I still do exactly what my great-grandfather did. That's amazing. So, um, and out of interest, why did you decide to move to South Africa? Because um, I, I don't think there's many Lithuanians that actually, you know, came here. No, it's because well, it's, we're a Jewish family, and and uh, most of the Jewish people in South Africa originated in Lithuania. I think at the height of the size of the community, there's about a hundred thousand Jewish people that originally came from Lithuania. Um, so and and they left Lithuania because of persecution uh, by the then Cossacks, the Tsarists. Oh. Yeah, so they left uh, Lithuania for economical reasons and persecution. Yeah, you just taught me some South African history that I didn't know. So it's shame on me for that. That's quite, it's quite interesting, and 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 I'm a dying species because I'm one of the last remaining Buddha Yoda in South Africa. There are not many of us left. We could actually be uh, we should be a protected uh, species at the moment. Well, you've certainly made an impact with Fairview. So. Um, can you tell us a little bit when, when I mean, your, your, your farm are open for guests. So when people come there, what can they experience at the farm? Uh, look, I've tried to very much keep the, the, the farm atmosphere and the family feel about it. And my late mother worked in the tasting room and, and her big thing was customer service. We always believed that we're in service of our customers and try and give them the best possible experience and give them the best possible products at the best possible price. And I've just stuck to those basic principles. So what you can expect if you arrive at Fairview is a warm family welcome. And all our staff are one big family. And uh, and we have the certain values that we all stick to. It's customer service, integrity, and, auth and authenticity. And those are the things that I stick to. So that's what you'll experience when you arrive at Fairview. That's amazing. I mean, kids love it there. Um, uh, and especially, tell us a little bit about the, the goat tower, tower and where that came from. Um, that started, we started farming, or my late father started farming with goats in the 1980s. I thought it was a mad idea, to be honest with you, in the beginning. And I remember when the first load of goats arrived at four o'clock in the morning on a big truck. And I couldn't believe it. And I think the biggest argument my dad and I ever had was about the goats. And because uh, I really was just more focused on wine and wanted the wine business to do well. And then he went to go and spend uh, much money, which was in very short supply and still is, on, on goats. And I thought that was a ludicrous idea. But anyway, he, uh, he got his way and, and we started making cheese. And it was terrible in the beginning. We struggled and we made the most disgusting cheeses known to man. I mean, you can't believe what the stuff looked like. Wow. Um, and then all of a sudden, the, we built a nuclear power plant in South Africa. The French came out and, at Kuburg and built this big power plant. And there were a lot of French technologists on site, and they discovered Fairview cheese. And they used to arrive here in the hordes buying up goat's cheese. And that's the way they liked it. The more smelly and stinky it was, the more they enjoyed it. And then at the same time, the health, um, health craze in South Africa and we became aware of cholesterol and saturated fats and, and goat milk is far healthier than cow milk when it comes to those um, components. And all of a sudden there was such a surge on goat cheese products and our poor goats couldn't keep up. 
And uh, we tried our best. But I put music in the milking parlor, changed the bedding, changed the food. <laughs> and we, and they just couldn't keep up with the, with the demand in goat milk. So we built a goat tower. And as incentive for the goat that produces the most milk in the week, they get a free weekend in the goat tower. And that's how the goat tower came to be at Fabia. So they all incentivize goats running up and down the tower. That is amazing. I hope that, but don't believe that story, okay? But anyway, there you go. That's how the goat tower. <laughs> that's how the goat tower got into being, and it became, I think, one of the most photographed things. And you've got Table Mountain and a couple other things, and the goat tower is right up there. It's, it's become, well, also the fact. The fact that you have it on a live webcam is also great, you know, that, that, that helps. Oh, no, you've seen that. The yeah. goats don't actually like that. The one goat escaped out of the tower because he hates being watched the whole time. And he's walking around the garden at the moment. Charles, but you know what I like, what, what I love about this is, is the stories that you have to tell, you know, is just um, absolutely amazing. And I was thinking about this. Um, um, you were telling, you saying that you wanted to last Buddha, you had a in, in South Africa and stuff like that. Um, it's almost a shame that our winans, our winans have such a rich history. And, um, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the stories aren't really, um, uh, you know, the, the, there's no real library of those stories. And I think it would be actually a nice project to, to save some of them. Do you have any ideas on that? I mean, it's completely, I just came in something that came to me. I'm very interested in, in wine history in South Africa. And, even history of my area, and I was very fortunate when I was a very young kid, and that's about a long, long time ago, about, about 60 years ago, I used to, we used to have a retired gardener, Wimpagel, I actually named a wine after him. He was sort of a descendant of a Malay slave, a very handsome, good-looking old man, and, and I spent a lot of my childhood days sitting in the vegetable garden with him, and he passed on when he was about, I'd say, in his late 90s, close to 99 or 98. And he used to come every day and he used to come sit there. My mother used to give him a nice co sandwich and coffee in the morning. And they used to have a chat in the morning sun. And I used to sit and I had the privilege of listening to his stories that then must have dated back, say, 70 years. And I'm not, and that's 60 years ago. So I've got a real insight into the area, the people and the history of this area. And I agree with you, there's so much of this information that's actually getting, uh, it's lost today. And we must try and do something about capturing a lot of that. And there's such, such interesting stories. And I think there's, some, there's a book to be written here for sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. So it's some project that I'm really interested in over, over, uh, in future. So tell us your view. I mean, I'd love to hear more about your wines. And also, I mean, you're such an interesting person. And also, you know, you've won so many awards and stuff. For your wines, tell us a little bit about your wines, and also, more importantly, your winemaking philosophy. And how did you, you know, how did you become so so good at what you do? <laughs> no, no, smoke and mirrors. <laughs> I've got a, I, I'm the weakest in a very weakest link in a very strong tra chain. I've got amazing people around me, and uh, it's a collective. Uh, I think what I did do differently, if anything. I, I worked on the premise, what varieties are more suited to our climate than, than what we had. So when most people have mostly had Cabernet, Merlot, and uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which were the best part, a great variety, but not always suited to Cape condition. 
I started looking at the more Mediterranean Iberian styles and looked for grapes that are more suited to slightly warmer um, conditions and especially drought resistant varieties. And that's why I plant a lot of the Grenache, Mouvadre, Carignan, uh, Shiraz, stuff like that. So I think I started with different raw material than, and had a, enough of it. And I also then looked at different areas and branched out in Pekingese Cliff and Darling and Swatland. And so I just, I, I just had the opportunity to have a bigger portfolio of different varieties and different locations. And I think that's what's made Fabi's wines uh, engaging over the last couple of years. Oh, that's um, so interesting. Now, you know, um, overseas, if you go into any wine, basically any supermarket, you'll find goats of the Rome, which seems yep. to be, you know, uh, very, your, your most successful brand, I, I, would, I would guess, just from observing yep. what I, you know, traveling myself. Well, uh, look, goats. I, I always I had a, I have a very good friend in the UK, and many years ago I, I spoke to him about what I think about twenty years ago, and uh, I told him that I think that that's a type of style of wine that will suit South African conditions, the best from a production perspective, as well as a consistency of quality over different vintages. And then he said, well, you're a goat farmer. Why don't you call, just call it Goats to Rome? And I said, no, that's ridiculous. Because never in my life before have I passed off something that's not. And that was a bit cheeky, I thought, at that stage. And I sat on the idea for about two years. And then I thought, you know what? Um, if there's one way to break down the barriers about exporting South African wine, this could be it. And, and, mm -hmm. and then I bottled the first Goats to Rome and became an overnight success, mainly due to the French opposition, I must hasten to add, because for some reason they weren't very happy about it. I, I, I love this but, story. I've heard, I've heard, I've, I mean, I can hear it from the person that actually started this, because I've, I've heard some of the backstories and of the rumors of your, of your fight with the French. Would you? Would you <laughs> yeah, I, say, I, I love this from a marketing perspective, right? Well, but, but what I, my story is, and it's not a story, it's actually a fact. The goats escaped out of the goat tower one day and roamed through the vineyards. And uh, I noticed they were eating Shiraz and then currying on Grenache, but they left out the cab and the Merlot and Pinotage. So I sent somebody with a clipboard, the laboratory assistant with a clipboard, and she took notes of what the goats ate roughly in the percentage that they were consuming them in. And then we made up the blend according to the goats' preferences, and that's where Goats to Rome came from. The French didn't buy that story for some other reason, and they thought I copied Cote de Rome, okay? And then they sued me, and then I thought the best way, I can't fight the French government, that's going to be a battle that I can't win. So I thought, well, let's take them on in a different way. And we arranged, I think, in political history, the first protest march where a white South African farmer with all these staff had a protest up to the French consulate in Cape Town. And I handed over a camembert brie and I handed over a magnet bottle of, of Gauterin. And in true French tradition, you know when French farmers are upset, they normally go to the Champs-Élysées in Paris and dump a load of manure. So I thought we're a little bit more civilized down here, so I vacuumed packed some boktrolikis and I took it to the, the ambassador for the pot plants in front of the embassy. So, and then I, for some strange reason, CNN was out there as well. I don't know who told them about it. 
and this thing hit global news all over the world and that was the start of Goatstrom as a brand. It was amazing. Unfortunately, the French have subsequently capitulated and don't take me on anymore. Otherwise, this publicity would continue rolling on. So they, they stopped and, and Goatstrom has become a brand which I, it's, it pops up all over the world. Is I think today the number one selling South African wine in Norway. So it's all over the show. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it everywhere. So, so um, here's another question: Is do you, I, I mean, obviously there were no cell phones at that time, which is a pity. But do you have any footage yeah. of this protest uh, besides what you're into? I think I've got. It was on news, so I, I one would go and find in archive. But you know, my staff were amazing. Um, they composed struggle songs, songs, and mm -hmm. uh, and they dance and they had a struggle. You won't get our goat or something like that, I can't remember. It was a really amazing thing and was a great uh, team building exercise as well. Um, there's, there's, I know there would be camera footage of it, I don't know about video. I will try and find, see if I've got any in the archive. Oh, I definitely need to come and talk to you about that because you know that story, that story could be told even more, I think. I think it's, I, I love it. <laughs> So, so Charles, I mean, your, your wines are sold all over the world, I assume, right? Um, um, is there, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your export business? Um, well, we, we export to, I think, most continents and countries that anywhere I can find a potential wine buyer, I, I would sell wine to. Obviously, the, the, the England and America and Canada and Scandinavia were the more important ones. But I think that our future is going to possibly be in Africa. And, and uh, we, we are really gearing up to servicing Africa as a continent. Obviously, with this COVID impasse, it slowed down a whole lot of our plans that we had. But uh, I think in the future, we'll see Africa emerging as a big market for South African wine. I've heard from other producers that they also find um, there's a, a premium, a little bit of a premium price in Africa for, for South African wines. Yeah, I think it's proud. We're proudly African, and I do believe when tourism comes back, Africa is going to be one of the more sought-after destinations because uh, we've got a hell of a lot to offer the the tourists. So I do believe that focus should be given to to our continent and and at home. I mean, uh, Johannesburg is still the biggest market for South African wine, and mm -hmm. we still got potential market in South Africa that hasn't. Uh, been exploited properly yet. Well, if we just convert a small percentage of our beer drinkers to wine drinkers, we might. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, try, I've, I've heard that since I've been in the wine business. <laughs> That's been 42 years and it hasn't happened yet. Hopefully, it does happen in my lifetime. Well, we'll see. So, um, you, you have a wine club at Fairview. Um, how does that work? Um, you know that, that uh, the big the wine club is actually just what I call retaining connectivity. Uh, we have a vast number of visitors fortunate to come and visit Fairview every year. And uh, we give an incentive to the purchase of, of wine if, if you join the wine club. And the reason why I do it is that I want to retain the connectivity and I make a lot of wines that are only sold on the property or online. And I enjoy doing that because there's small batches that we, we've got a range called Blomquil. Mm -hmm. which is the, the original name of Fairview, used to be called Blumkort's Fontaine. And wow. uh, we actually we actually called the, the range of wine Blumkort, and we make it from recycled paper, the label, and in the label is embedded cauliflower 
seeds for recycling. And so it's a whole uh, nice story telling the story of the history of Fairview. But that gives the winemakers complete freedom to go and do whatever they want to do. So you would have the most obscure varieties made in the most obscure way. Uh, natural wine, wine on the skins, different varieties blend. So I allowed that to happen, and that we only sell on the farm, and that became immensely popular. And we also only sell that online. And then, in addition to that, I've got a range called Broken Barrel, which is a batch system where we make every vintage, we make one wine that is unique to that vintage. And after the vintage, after the wine's bottled, we design a label that depicts the whole story that we're trying to tell in the product and we break the mold and we'll break the barrel and we never do it again. And that's become immensely popular. It's our number one selling wine today, actually. And, wow. and, and that's all driven for online because we want our consumers to engage because we've got so many stories to tell. So either they must come and visit us and fading, which if they can't, which we understand, then they can connect with, with us via internet and our wine club. And in fact, we're launching a, I don't know when this podcast is going live, uh, tonight we're launching a program where if you buy wine now, during the lockdown, we'll give you 1% discount for every day that you have to wait till the lockdown is lifted. So it's gambling that. on the, and that's going live this evening, hopefully, and that's also a very exciting uh, promotion. So Charles, I'll definitely promote that um, the, the the podcast will only go go live in about a week. But actually, I'll I'll put up something about that specific because I love it. So I'll, I'll because so I, I'm in a week's time, yeah, in a I'm week's in, time you'll have seven percent discount already. Yeah. How long do I have to wait before I get the wine for free? How many days? <laughs> yeah, but there's a, there's a there's a cap on that. Uh, oh, you've got a, you've got an escape clause in it. I'll tell you how the escape clause works. My late father had. That South Africa's first held South Africa's first wine auction in 1974, which is now 46 years ago. So mm -hmm. we're going to give you up to 46 days. That's 46 okay. percent discount. Oh, that's uh, hopefully for my sake, hopefully for my sake, the lockdown is lifted a bit quicker. But just to protect the consumers, I put a minimum of two weeks. So we think it's. it's I think you'll have 15 percent discount guaranteed. I stand corrected. Sorry, I've just been corrected. Um, the moment of madness, I've given a guaranteed 20% discount. Excellent. Well, now that you're talking about this, I mean, marketing, and, and, and it must be in your family's blood, right? And, and it seems like um, you're not just an excellent winemaker, wine but also, I mean, everything you're doing seems to be very much marketing-oriented. Um, I, I love the fact that you do this um, stuff on the 1st of April, I think last year you had the cows walking on the treadmill and this year you're doing the hand sanitizer. Do you have any other interesting yeah. April Fool stories that you can tell us or any other marketing stories? I love these. No, but marketing about for me is not about, it's just telling the truth in a humorous way. That's my, my style or coming up with an engaging story that, that has some subliminal message in it. So my marketing is not really, one can't categorize it as true marketing. Um, so uh, the, I've done a couple of things with the, I think the, the interesting one I did once, I've the, uh, April Fool, I've done so many, I must actually do a little booklet of the April Fool things I've done. Great, one yeah. was I've got, I've got a little goat, I've got a little uh, game camp I used to have at Fairview, there's some springbok roaming around it. And one day I said that, that the springbok ram escaped and he met these beautiful little goats down there at the, at the goat pen. 
and they obviously got together and uh, had a bit of fun. And a couple of months later, they goats gave birth to spring goats. And the problem with the spring goats was herding them, getting them into the milking part. They were very skittish, but uh, amazingly, the milk was much lower in cholesterol and much healthier. And you know, I've got calls from all over, I, I think from Tanzania, I've got an inquiry and Kenya for people wanting to purchase uh, spring goats. Okay, so that was quite funny. And then I did one, I went to Google Viagra and I got the chemical compound in Viagra. And I said, we've identified it in goat horn. And then I had a goat standing there and I photoshopped. I photoshopped its one horn. I blackened the horn out and I had a, a gentleman standing with an overall and a, and a face mask on with a tiny chainsaw. So I said, we're harvesting the goat horns and then we're powdering it. And we found out that it's got the same properties as Viagra. And we just got a award from the World Wildlife Organization for saving the rhino. And you can't believe how many people phoned me for that stuff as well. As with the hand sanitizer, I've got people calling us with the hand sanitizer. So we really, have fun, we really have fun with the April Fools. And it's a way of engaging our customers and, and actually lightening up. A, this year was to lightening up a bit of gloomy, gloomy times to put a bit of humor into it. Well, it seems to me that part of your, your winning recipe is, you know, enjoying your business and having fun, which I always said, if you're not enjoying your work, why are you working? Exactly. No, no, it's, it's a privilege to be able to get up every day and, and, and really uh, live your dream and what I'm, I've been doing for 42 years and hopefully I'll be able to do it for a couple of years more. I'm sure. Now back to, you know, something more um, serious, the coronavirus has changed, you know, everything we do and um, everyone has to basically rethink their business models. What are your thoughts and um, do you have any ideas or anything new in mind? Well, I, th I think one must put as terrible and as scary and as horrific this is and, uh, and the heart goes out to all those people that have uh, families that have lost lives during this period of time. But, you know, the world has an amazing ability to overcome lots of things. I mean, in our recent history, we, had, we overcame the Second World War, mm -hmm. um, if you take what happened there. And the world recovered quite quickly after that. So humanity is a resilient uh, force. And I do believe things, uh, as much as we doom and gloom now, things will change. The challenge is how long it's going to take. And obviously, the, the price we're paying for this impasse. Uh, on humanitarian and financial front. Um, I, I think one mustn't, I think, I think the main things that we're going to be focusing on more and more and entrenching those values is, um, I think, transparency. I think that's one in business. Authenticity, I think that's uh, very, very important. And integrity. And I think if you take those three factors and just drill down as hard as you possibly can into them and make sure your business reflects that, you're going to find resonance with people from all walks of life moving forward. So what does that equate to in real terms? If you come to the goat shed at Fairview in the future, we've got space, so we can utilize the space. People can sit uh, far apart, that's fine. And your products that you'll have on your plate will be grown by us and reared on the farm and be treated in a proper way. And that's the kind of products that I'm interested in, from wine, cheese, whatever. That's what I'm wanting to do. And I believe that's what's going to succeed in the future. People want to understand what goes into a product more so now than ever before.
I think that's that's right, and and also like your philosophy. I mean, I, I do agree with you. The world has overcome, you know, two world wars and many recessions and depressions, and people are not really going to change. And I personally think that, you know, um, uh, tourism might take a hit uh, now a bit, but at some stage it's going to explode again because people are people and people want to travel. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I just. Think I just think the, the, the what I'm concerned about the more vulnerable people, in, especially in South African society. Uh, yeah, we must. Uh, I think they're going to suffer the brunt of this, uh, unfortunately, and they're the ones that these can afford to. So there has to be there has to be programs in place to make sure there's a safety net for all South Africans. I, I do agree with you with that, and um, I mean I also saw um, that you guys are very much into. Um, all kinds of social responsibility projects and um, sustainability and stuff like that um, on your, you know, on your farm and on your products. Is there anything you want to say specifically about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's thing that I, I don't necessarily want to talk about on, on this platform, but it was great to see. Uh, I opened our, our kitchen at the goat shed and during this time we've been able to run it as a soup kitchen. And I don't know how many thousand meals we've served already, um, but we really try our best on that front. And it's very easy to do it. It sounds like it's a, a big commitment. It's actually so simple because we have so much bones coming out of our butchery after, and we can boil them up and make a nice broth. And then using beans as a nice form of protein and potatoes that people donate to us. And then you can make a wholesome, hearty meal for somebody. So it's easy things to do. So that's easy. But the more difficult things are that um, Fairview, all my vineyards are owned. We're different to most other wineries where we own most of our own vineyards rather than buying grapes. And all the grapes are produced uh, are fair trade accredited, which is quite a difficult standard to get to. And that just guarantees the consumer that he or she will know that everything that we've done has been socially, socially uh, correct and done in the in the correct fashion, right throughout labor management, uh, everything, human resources, the whole lot. So I think that's important. The second thing that I think is equally important is looking after environment. And we're just in throes of converting our whole spice wine farm in not the destination, the farm in the Swatland uh, to mm. organic. I think our first organic wines will come out next year. So we're in, we're in year two or year three of uh, the third year of conversion. And then we also embarked upon a very interesting project of natural winemaking at Spice Root, where we imported these clay pots called quaveries from, uh, from Georgia, former part of Russia, where we make natural wines in. And we started, launched our first products I think last vintage was under the label Spice with Obscura. And, uh, and we imported 10 clay pots last year, another 10. So you've got about 20 pots, um, roughly making up 20,000 liters of natural winemaking that we'll be doing yearly now from organically grown grapes. And I think very much that's a way in the future we will must probably convert Fairview just after we finish Spice it. And I think that's the way to go. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yes, wow. This is, I mean, you're busy with so many things, but um, my question for you now is, you know, what is the most important thing that you've learned from your wine journey? Um, don't underestimate your consumer. I think that's number one, respect your consumer. Uh, and, 
and value. And for me, uh, I always look at it. If you go travel overseas, which is not going to happen in the area again, if you go and sell wine, you've got the, your couple of samples of wine in your suitcase, and you're going, it's flying, getting into cabs, getting into Ubers, driving, getting to a restaurant to make an appointment with a sommelier. He doesn't show up. Another person <laughs> shows up. You look at all the trouble attached to doing that and the cost. And then you look at, I sit at Fabian, I see all these thousands of visitors taking the trouble to come and visit us. And the number one thing is you must respect them because you're grateful that they're taking the trouble to visit your state. I think that's a very important lesson. That is, that is such important business advice. I think, you know, um, um, yeah, anyone listening to this should take that to heart. So Charles, my final question for you is um, you have to give us your very own wine quote or your favorite wine quote. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> I don't expect that one, but I can tell you very much in my life. Uh, yeah. I would say a day without wine is like a day without sunshine. How's that? I love that one. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, if people want to get hold of you guys and want to come, how do, how do they get hold of you? Uh, I don't know how to get hold of you. I think the best is go to Fairview website. We're on there. If you, anybody can contact me personally through the website at info at Fairview. Um, if, you want, if people want to get hold of me, it's very easy. Just phone Fairview. It's 021-863-2450. I'm available in any time to any customer, any query, any help I can do. I'm around. Sure. Um, I'm on the farm. I, I, under not, I haven't changed my lifestyle. I've been under lockdown for years. It hasn't changed. I'm always here. So, so Charles, that's amazing how accessible you are, right? And um, I remember back in um, when I was at university in the 80s, we did a study on Nordstrom, the, the um, department store in America, the one that I think it started in Chicago. And um, the, the guy that ran it, Bruce Nordstrom, was always available on his phone. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's lost so many business people have lost the fact, you know, yeah. most businesses, if you try to get a hold of the owner, yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible. And here you are saying that, and, and, and comes back to what you're saying, your respect for the consumer. So I really appreciate that. And the time that you've spent with talking to us, it's, it's great. Thank you. My pleasure. And, and good luck to all your visitors. Stay strong. Things will come right. Thank you for supporting our show. If you would like to get more exposure for your business, please have a look at our sponsorship options. Thanks again for supporting About the Winelands. Please follow us on YouTube and on our social media channels. All details and links are in the description.